you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I will tell you that we will get to our text later in the sermon. Okay. There are some things I'd like to cover before we get to that. So we're studying the book of Galatians. This is a letter that Paul wrote. It is a letter of rebuke. It follows the format of the ancient world. Um, to the Galatian believers who are leaving their personal relationship with Jesus the Messiah. And, and why are they doing so? They've been pointed in a different direction. That is another gospel, which tells them, yeah, you have to become Jews. You have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to really, really be a Christian. Um, it is good that they've believed in the Messiah. It's good that they've been baptized which traditionally in Judaism, if one converts, if a Gentile converts to Judaism, they must be baptized. Baptism is a sign of conversion. So you've got those two things right, but you lack one more thing, and that is circumcision and keeping the law. This is unacceptable, Paul says, and it is to be condemned. He says in, the first, in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And then he repeats himself, as we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And in responding to this drifting away from their relationship with Jesus the Messiah, Paul tells a series of personal stories to reestablish his apostleship, but also to make clear what the gospel means and what the implications of the gospel are. This is what he preached to them. This is what they believed. And for some reason, well, people have come up and have thrown them into confusion and they're drifting away from it. The longest story has to do with his confrontation with Peter in Antioch some years before. That is to say, you know, Paul was in Antioch, Peter comes up, and when Peter first comes up, he is eating with Gentile believers, table fellowship. They have communion, they have a meal together, and Peter's fine with that. But then some people come up from Jerusalem. Um, and then Peter's like, I can't eat with you guys anymore. I can't eat with the Gentiles. I can only hang out with the Jews. As we saw last week, at the end of the first council in Jerusalem, they decide to write a letter, and the letter begins, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. Um, and so certain men came from James, Paul says, but they were not sent by James. Um, why, why, why say that they came from James? We can only speculate. Um, it may be that James, in fact, did send these people up to Antioch, but not to confuse the people and not to say, you guys need to follow uh, the Mosaic law. It could be that they were not sent by James at all, which is what I tend to think, but they come from Jerusalem. And since they come from Jerusalem and that's where the church is, then they could say, yeah, we come from James. We come from Jerusalem. 
Paul doesn't care whether they've been sent by James or not. Because he says, if anybody, if an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Um, yeah. He doesn't care who sent them, if they came on their own authority, what they're doing is wrong. And Peter is being a total hypocrite by not eating with Gentile believers just because the Jewish believers came up from Jerusalem. What we find at the second part of verse number 14 to the end of the chapter is what Paul says to Peter. This is one apostle speaking to another apostle. And the passage is about the gospel. It is about Christian identity for both Jews and Gentiles. I would point out, if you look at verses 16 and 17, chapter 2, we find the word justified four times. What does this word mean? And did Paul come up with this word? To justify means to declare righteous or to set right. This is something that, because we are English speakers, we have trouble with this. In Greek and in Hebrew, justify and righteous, or just and righteous, come from the same root word. Okay, for us, they're not, we don't see any connection. You have to sort of make a connection between to justify and to make righteous. This is not the case in Hebrew and certainly not the case in Greek. In Romans 3.26 in the NIV, we read, he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. But the ESV, I think, is, is better in this. It says, it was to show his righteousness. But if you say righteousness, then we, we lose the connection with justice. But again, in Greek, they come from the same root word. So it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Another translation has, that is, that he himself is in the right and that he declares to be in the right everyone who trusts in the faithfulness of Jesus. So two words, just and righteous, coming from the same root word, but not in English. And so we sort of lose our way in that. You know, just can be an adjective, a just person. It can be a verb to justify. It can be a noun. Uh, speaking of an action that one justifies, that's a verb, but the justification they have in fact made just. And another noun is justice. Righteous, on the other hand, you, it can be an adjective, a righteous person can also speak of one's behavior, one's moral quality, a righteous person. But it also speaks of that which is correct, that which is right. Um, so to us, these two words seem related somehow, but quite different. And we lose much of what Paul is trying to say here. Another word before we move on is the word faith along with the word faithfulness. This is key, as I hope we'll see as we go along. Paul did not come up with the word justify, okay? Whether the word or the meaning of justify, this is not original with Paul. 
As one writer put it, Paul's understanding of justification must be interpreted resolutely in terms of affirmation of God's faithfulness to the covenant, a faithfulness surprisingly but definitively confirmed through Christ's death and resurrection. Paul didn't come up with this, and in fact, his use of the word is very Old Testamenty, if you wish. It comes from the Old Testament, and it is fulfilled in Jesus, and this is the point he's trying to make. God's plan began with Abraham, and we'll see that when we get to our text uh, in a bit in chapter 3. If you'll look now, we'll come back back to it later, but verse number 6. Consider Abraham, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I find it providential that what Zib read to us today uh, from Romans 15. She quoted, uh, Paul quotes, I think, at least four times from the book Isaiah about the Gentiles coming into the people of God. Um, this has been God's plan all along. God has a single plan. Um, His plan is to reconcile the world and the human race to himself. Uh, I think being where we are, people think that God had different plans. One didn't work, you know, plan A didn't work, so we do plan B, and that doesn't work, then do plan C. God has had one plan all along, and it began with the person of Abraham. He called Abraham, and then later on he called Israel. They failed in their call, and what we have is, in fact, the faithful servant, Israel's representative, Jesus the Messiah, who was faithful and who did fulfill God's call. You might say, okay, that's good, but what about the law? I seem to go from Abraham, Israel, to Jesus, but what about the law? What about Sinai? Paul said, if you look at verse number 16, this is back in chapter 2, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have our faith, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Paul is not original in this statement. Okay? He is not unique in this statement. A man is not justified by keeping the law. David wrote about this. In the Psalms, Psalm 143, do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one is righteous before you. What Paul wants to remind Peter of, because in this passage, 14b to 21, he's trying to remind Peter, sort of the chief of the apostles, God has a plan. He's always had a plan, one plan. And it began with, it began with Abraham. Then it was to go through Israel and finally to the world. The plan was always for the world. Okay? It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the world. You may remember, and we'll, I'll read this again later on when we get to chapter 3. Um, the first, some of the first words we have, God speaking to Abraham. And at that point, his name was Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's purpose, God the creator, is to call Abraham so that through his family, he, that is God, could rescue the world from its plight. Later on in chapter 15 of Genesis, and we saw this when we went through uh, the story of Abraham, after, after this, after rescuing Lot, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate as Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God, he believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And here we come to see that being declared righteous was because he believed he had faith in God's promise. When we get to verse number six, we'll see that Paul quotes this. He also quotes it in Romans chapter four. And let me read to you an extended passage here. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. By the way, this statement is quoted at least four times in the New Testament. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked. That's amazing. God justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. This is from Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, is it only for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. When we went through James, in James chapter 2, this statement is also quoted that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so it's faith. Trust God. Abraham trusted God and he was justified. He was, it was credited to him as righteousness. Then why do we have the law? Why do we go Abraham, Israel, law, then Jesus? Why don't we simply go Abraham, Israel, and then Jesus? 
Why did God give the law? We know that he delivered Israel out of slavery. This was an act of God's grace. And he brought them to Sinai to tell them how to live. But there's something else he did. And Paul brings this out in Romans. To give them the knowledge of sin. Um, You know the expression, what's wrong with this picture? Um, People had been sinning since Adam and Eve sinned. And they knew something was wrong. But, But what was wrong? What was wrong is they were breaking God's law. But God had not given the law. So the purpose of Moses getting the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law is to say to Israel and ultimately to the world, this is sin. This is what's wrong with this picture. This is what needs to be corrected. You were redeemed out of slavery. You are sinners. And here's a list of things. Don't do this. These are the things you're supposed to do. And if you do the things you're not supposed to, you've sinned. And if you don't do the things you're supposed to, you've sinned. That's why the law was given. In Romans 3, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Okay. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. The law tells us what is right and what is wrong. In Romans 4, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, this is a verse that for many years has really puzzled me, and I would say even troubled me. Is Paul trying to say, if you don't have a law, then nobody's done anything wrong? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that with the giving of the law, now we know what's wrong with this picture. We know what we're doing wrong. Okay, And without the law, there... I think people have a sense of guilt. They do have a sense that they've done something wrong, but it's not been spelled out, and God gives the law to tell them, this is sin. This is what is wrong. In Romans 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. So before Sinai, did people covet? Absolutely. Okay. Did they know it was wrong? I would say they probably did. Because they're made in the image of God. But when you're given the Ten Commandments and the Tenth Commandment says, do not covet, then you're like, oh, okay. And when I covet, I'm breaking the law. I'm sinning. That is the purpose of the law. So the, law, uh, the Lord calls Abraham and then Israel, but the purpose is for the world, is for the Gentiles. It isn't just to keep it sort of in the family. It is so that all nations on earth will be blessed. And if that's the case, then keeping the law, <laughs> it's not going to save you. In fact, if anything, it simply condemns you. It says, you are a sinner. You have broken God's laws. One more thing, another word, and that is Paul's use of the word faith. 
I would suggest that what Paul intends is not our faith, but rather the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. The common English Bible has it this way in verse 16. However, we know that a person isn't made righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Christ Jesus so that we would be made righteous. We could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by works of the law, because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. And then verse number 20, the famous verse, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith, indeed by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave himself for me. Israel was to be a light to the world. They were to be faithful to God's commands, to God's call. He brought them out of slavery. He said, you are my people. You will be a nation of priests, a holy nation. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. And they failed. In their place comes the faithful Israelite, the faithful one, Jesus the Messiah, who carried out God's single plan, which began with Abraham, through Israel, they failed. And now Jesus comes on the scene and he is faithful to God's call. He is obedient. He is faithful, even to the point of death, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. We saw last Sunday that this confrontation with Peter in verses 14 to 21, it begins with you that basically one can almost picture Paul pointing the finger at Peter and saying, you. But then he shifts in the next verse to we. But then he shifts to I in a really intensely personal passage. Um, So what I just read to you, verse number 16 uh, from the Common English Bible. However, we know that a person isn't made just made righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Christ. We ourselves believed in Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteousness by the faithfulness of Christ. That's verse 16. When we get to verse number 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was trusting in the faithfulness of Christ. Jesus was faithful even to the point of death. He obeyed God's commands. Israel failed to do that. Jesus did not. He is, in fact, the one who stood in our place, took our punishment. He was faithful. Trusting in Jesus and his faithfulness gives one a new identity. That will be fleshed out as we go along in chapter 3. So now we come to chapter 3. And the opening is rather harsh. Okay? You foolish Galatians. Um, The New English Bible has you stupid Galatians. Um, The message has you crazy Galatians. Why is Paul all worked up? By the way, just parenthetically, my sister, my late sister Michelle, when she was raising uh, her two children, Matt and Mandy, they were not allowed to say the word stupid. That, That was not 
acceptable. And yet we have Paul calling the Galatians stupid. It's quite remarkable. So what is he worked up about? Uh, Fall along as I read the first nine verses here in chapter three. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it, if it really was for nothing. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's start at verse 1. The word that is translated as foolish, or in one translation, stupid or crazy, unlike the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, a fool is someone who acts as though God does not exist. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay. Um, we, we tend to say, oh, no, that means someone who's not very smart. Here, the word that Paul uses is, yeah, someone who's not very smart. Okay, it's not someone who acts as though God does not exist. It's someone who has diminished intellectual ability. Either there's insufficient or mistaken use of one's mental powers, or there simply is a deficiency in understanding. But then you'll notice he doesn't simply say, okay, you guys are foolish or you guys are stupid. He then says that you have been bewitched. It points to having a spell cast on that somebody has been hypnotized somehow into believing this false gospel. Um, the root word, by the way, for the word bewitched here is the same that we use in English for fascinated. And perhaps it was that the Galatians were fascinated that here had people had come from Jerusalem, all the way from Jerusalem, where the mother church was. And they were like, ooh, these are people from the big place and, you know, from Jerusalem. And so they were fascinated by what these people had to say. Um, I find it interesting that Paul begins with foolish, but then he goes on to include bewitched. The Galatians need to know that they bear responsibility. The story is told that after World War II, a group of pastors in Germany were lamenting the fact that they had been misled by demonic forces, that they had allied themselves with Hitler and the Nazis. was demonic, diabolical. A senior pastor brought them back from their near hysteria to sober reality, as one writer puts it. Gentlemen, he said, we have all been very foolish. You can't simply point the finger and say, oh, I, I was bewitched. I, something, a demonic force, that's why I got off track. Um, we bear responsibility as well. There are, in fact, demonic forces that are seeking to mislead us and to mislead the world. 
but we are responsible creatures. We bear responsibility. And so as Paul lays out his case, he wants the Galatians to know, now you can't point the finger and say, well, it's those guys from Jerusalem. They made us do it. Um, You bear responsibility as well. Um, We saw this in chapter one, where he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one. He is like, you guys are doing it. Okay, you're deserting the Lord Jesus. You can't point the finger at someone else. Um, How did this happen? How were they bewitched? Why are they so foolish? Well, part of it is, if they had just sat down and thought logically, used reason, they would have seen that these guys from Jerusalem were wrong. Okay? That the message that Paul preached to them was quite different than what these guys were saying. It wasn't like, oh, you know, what Paul preached, that was good, but you need to add something. No, it's completely different. You're talking about something totally different. First of all, the message of the gospel that Paul preached to them centered around the reality that Jesus the Messiah had been crucified. If you, in verse number one, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Portrayed does not refer to some type of document. You know, you you read about this in a document that Paul had written previously. Or a depiction of the suffering and dying of Jesus. Rather, it points to the public and official character of the gospel. This is what the gospel is all about. The way that Paul writes this in Greek does not characterize Jesus as one who is still hanging on the cross to be considered as such now, but rather it is him and his character. He is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, and he is the one who was crucified and has been raised from the dead. I I, I must be frank with you. I think for us, we, we lose a lot in this because we are so familiar with the story of the death of Jesus. And, uh, I don't know about you, but I've never seen anyone crucified. That's not something that is done today, at least not in our country. Um, And, let's face it, our system is sort of messed up. We don't always associate crime and punishment. You know, we don't always make that connection. Because someone can, in fact, go to prison, but... We're just off in that. I have no doubt that there are people in Galatia who had actually seen people crucified. Okay? Um, As one writer had put it, the Romans were pretty good at killing people. They were used to it. They knew how to do it. They were extremely effective. Their empire was built on it. They knew about crucifixion. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus was crucified. Okay, and if he went through this horrible thing that we have to describe because we've never seen something like that, they had. Paul doesn't have to, you know how terrible it is and the degrading, he doesn't have to do that. They, They know what it is. Okay. So Jesus the Messiah died. 
but now you're saying you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the law, then his death is nothing. It's nothing. If it is, in fact, the death of Christ plus something, then his death ultimately means nothing. The Galatians are deserting the gospel for a sham that is foolish and makes no sense at all. Secondly, when the Galatians accepted Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, who was willing to be crucified as a common criminal in obedience to the Father's will, when they put their trust in him, they received the Holy Spirit. They received the Spirit, which means that now they are part of the family of God. They share the Holy Spirit with all believers. So how did this happen? Is it because, oh, we kept the law. I was a really good person last week. I didn't lie. I didn't covet. You know, I honored my parents. Is that, is that how you got the Holy Spirit? Of course not. It was because they had, in fact, put their faith in the Messiah. So he says in verse number two, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Is it because you believe the gospel or is it because of something that you did? When people receive the gospel, it's true today as it was back then, they receive the spirit of God. God gives us his spirit when we put our faith in Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is again, the crucified Messiah. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. We must be careful now here in 2024 that we do not think of the gospel as merely a set of facts that we give a presentation, this is the gospel. You are a sinner, you are in need of salvation, and Jesus died for your sins. It is the good news, and it must come with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It isn't simply mental assent, oh yes, I accept that. It is in fact bowing before God and putting our trust in the faithfulness of the Messiah. Those who believe the message put their trust in Jesus, the crucified Messiah. They become a part of the family of God. They receive the Spirit of God. So it's a no-brainer. How'd, how'd you get the Spirit, guys? Was it by doing good things, by keeping the law? Not at all. Paul did not preach the law. He preached the gospel. They believed the gospel, and they received the Spirit of God. It's only later when the troublemakers come in who bewitch them, who tell them that they are lacking something. If the Galatians would just stop and think for a moment, just sit down and think for a moment, they would remember and realize that they came into the family of God, they received the Spirit of God by trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus. 
That's how it happened. And if they would think a bit more, they would realize they have taken a very, very foolish path by listening to these people who have come from Jerusalem. So Paul says, are you so foolish? Have you not really thought this through? It doesn't make sense, does it? Why, why would you go down this road? It does not make any sense at all. The New English Bible, again, is quite direct. Can it be that you are so stupid? Stop and think a minute of what has happened. He goes on by asking a couple questions. Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? It could be, we don't know, but it sounds like that the Galatians were already going th- undergoing persecution because they had put their faith in Jesus. Paul certainly had. We saw this when we began looking at the book of Galatians. We read about his experience in Lystra. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. They tried to kill him. They thought they had killed him. So it may in fact be that the believers in Galatia are experiencing persecution as well. And why are they experiencing persecution? Because they keep the law? Or is it because they put their trust in the faithfulness of Jesus? The second question was, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? We cry out to God and ask him to intercede, to work in our lives and the lives of others. And is it, do we say, okay, Father, we, we did all these things, we didn't do these bad things, and so we want you to do the miraculous in our presence. It is not because of anything that we have done. It is because of God's spirit and God's promises and the faithfulness of Jesus. How did the miracles happen in Galatia? Was it because they kept the law? The answer is no. One could make the case that the people from Jerusalem who were talking about the law, they weren't even thinking of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. They weren't thinking of miracles. It was all about them about them keeping the law. It leads to Paul's third point here. By becoming a part of the family of God, they are already the children of Abraham. You don't have to be circumcised. It's a sign of the covenant. You don't have to do that. You're already a child of Abraham. And here we have it, God's plan. It begins with Abraham, Israel, for the Gentiles, for the whole world. And if you believe as Abraham believed, The gospel was proclaimed to him. If you believe, then you're already a child of Abraham. You don't have to be circumcised to say, oh, I have the mark of the covenant. I'm part of the family of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. Those who have faith, verse number nine, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In order to be the true children of Abraham, One does not have to be circumcised. One has to believe. One has to trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. I would argue, by the way, that the guys who came from Jerusalem had little or nothing to say about being a part of the family of God. For them, it was being a part of Israel. And they had forgotten what God said to Abraham way back when, all nations will be blessed. Okay, it's not just the Jews. 
but they had somehow put on blinders and it was only about them. In, in my, one of the things I was reading this week, um, the example was made of, you know, there was a time when people believed that the earth was the center of the universe and that the sun went around the earth, geocentric. It's only later on that we found out that, oh no, we're not the center of the universe. That in our system, the earth and the other planets go around the sun. I think the people from Jerusalem are geocentric. It's all about us. And Paul's like, no, it's all about Jesus. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus and putting your trust in him. Which brings us to another issue, and that is the issue of faith. I suspect, and um, we can, you can talk to me afterwards, we can disagree about this, but I often think that when people speak of faith, it almost becomes a form of good works. I believe, I have strong enough faith. And when things don't turn out the way you want, it's like, well, my faith was too weak. Uh, no, it's not about your faith per se, it's about the faithful, faithfulness of Jesus, his faith, the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We put our trust in him, okay? And trust, it's not like, ooh, I really hope it works out. It is that Jesus was faithful. He did it. And we are to put our trust in him. Um, and if, in fact, we have faith, it's not because we are great people. What it means is we are part of the family of Abraham, the man of faith. There's so much more to say, but let me try to wrap this up. We must not fall into the same trap as the false brothers from Jerusalem and the Galatians did. The story is not about us. Okay. The story is about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And Paul tells us that at the very beginning of the letter. You know, and I suspect that we rush through it too quickly. That's like, okay, this is standard, you know, you know, how with business letters or form letters, you have, you know, this opening paragraph, you know, all this. But at the very, very beginning of Galatians, Paul tells the Galatians what's what. If you would look at Galatians 1, Verse number three. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There it is. There's the gospel. Jesus was faithful unto death he gave himself for our sins. He became, we'll see in 2 Corinthians, he became sin for us. Jesus was without sin. He is a, blem a, a blameless, but a, a lamb without blemish. 
And then he stood in our place and took our sins on him. He was faithful to do this. It was not a small thing. And the Garden of Gethsemane shows that to us. He was faithful unto death. And because of his righteousness, we put our trust in him. And we are made the children of God. We are a part of God's family. So what is the gospel? I think Paul is challenging Peter on this. What, what do you think the gospel is? However, we know that a person isn't made righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. And then Paul gives his personal testimony. I have been crucified with Christ. Who I was is gone. The old identity is gone. You know, I'm a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee. I keep the law. Yeah, that's all gone. I'm crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. The old me is gone. But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the gospel. Tom and I were speaking before the service about various things, but one of the things I brought up, he brought it up, and I gave you an example that... A, a pastor friend of mine told me this decades ago that he feared that many people in this country had been inoculated against the gospel. An inoculation is where you're given a weaker form of a disease so that your body can build up resistance to it. If the gospel is presented, it's all about you. It's all about you. That's a weaker form of the gospel. And when the true gospel comes along and says, it's the faithfulness of Jesus, people have no place for it. And so we should not be surprised that people leave the faith, because it isn't really the faith. It is a weaker form. It is a deluded form of the gospel. And Paul will have none of it. Paul says, listen, if you weaken the faith, the gospel, let you be eternally condemned. Peter, you're a hypocrite. You know that you became a child of God not by keeping the law. The story is not about my faith. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus. Let's never forget that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we throw ourselves on your mercy. In the words of the tax collector that Jesus spoke of, God be merciful to me, a sinner. May we come to see clearly by your grace 
that we are your children not because of anything we have done. It is because of the faithfulness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Like Abraham, by your grace, we believe you. We believe the gospel. And we become members of your family. We are declared to be righteous. Though in our daily acts, we are less than that. How gracious you are. How faithful you are. We sang of it earlier, but we, we speak also of the faithfulness of Jesus, who came, who lived among us, who gave his life that we might have life. This is the gospel. May we take it to heart in a new and powerful way. May we remember that when we became your children, we received your Holy Spirit. The same Spirit lives in each one of us and has lived in each one of all of your children throughout the centuries. It's not because of anything we have done. It's not because of keeping the law. It is because of your grace. While Paul is somewhat harsh in his letter, I thank you for what he wrote and how he makes clear what the gospel is and what its implications are. We want everyone to be saved. We want all people to be saved, but we should not compromise and weaken the gospel. Holy Spirit, speak to us and open our eyes and our hearts. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for your faithfulness all these years. We are grateful. Above all, thank you for your love as we see in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.